start off with talking about something that has been a hot button issue for a lot of Canadians. You're likely going to relate to this one. Grocery prices. So inflation, price gouging. Most Canadians are noticing that food prices are noticeably higher and taking some pretty major issue with the increases. So last year, Canada's food price report for 2023 came out and it estimated that prices, price increases will mean an average Canadian family of four is going to spend around $16,200 per year on food. See if that sits well and sits realistically for you. $16,000 a year for a family of four on food. That's a jump of about $1,000 compared to the yearly cost of food observed the year before. I feel like for most people, those numbers are actually going to look a little bit higher. Uh, But politicians have talked about this a lot. The conversation around grocery prices is well known and well documented. This is NDP leader Jagmeet Singh going after grocers at a news conference in St. John's, Newfoundland this last Tuesday. These corporate grocery stores that are posting record profits, they're gouging Canadians. They're making more money than ever before while Canadians can't afford to buy their groceries. So we're saying enough's enough. And what is enough being enough actually going to mean for Canadians? What are we realistically doing about this? What can we do about this? We're going to get into it right now with our next guest who wrote a great opinion piece for the Globe and Mail talking about the government stepping in to freeze grocery prices. Seems like a good idea. Is it reasonable? She's the founder of Regs to Riches, a senior fellow at CIGI and the executive director of McMaster University's Master of Public Policy and Digital Society program, Vass Bednar. Vass, thank you so much for making the time. Hey, thanks for having me. Let's just talk a little bit about Canada's grocery prices, because looking at uh, an estimate of $16,000 a year for a family of four, that feels pretty modest to me. Let's just talk a little bit about where we stand with grocery prices and why this has been such a big conversation for the better part of the year. Why did you want to dive into this? I think grocery prices have become a big conversation for people because they're, you know, on everyone's budget line, but there's a lot of elasticity there right? There's a lot of choices that people make about what they eat, when, how they prepare food, you know, waiting for certain things to be on discount. So you, each family arguably has, you know, some flexibility. And I also think there's just a fascination in Canada with our grocery industry. You know, we've seen grocery CEOs come testify at Parliament. And really, for me, it's that sector has become characterized by just a lack of trust. Right. There's been a breakdown of trust. And I don't know if we can trace that back to uh, bread and price fixing, um, but it feels like the marketplace is murky and it's difficult, I think, for Canadians to reconcile reading about uh, record corporate profits in the grocery sector and then looking at the rate of growth of prices. Those things feel you know, related. And that's why we're having conversations and seeing more research on things like reflation and price markups. Let's talk a little bit about what Loblaws did earlier this year. So they did freeze mm. prices for their no-name brand, but there are yeah. some, uh, maybe some some murky details that actually went into that. That might have been a strategy that they would have just done annually anyways, right? Yeah. So their competitors sort of went on the record. They're like, why are they, <laughs> why are they tooting their horn on this? We all kind of do this between November <laughs> and January or February. You're absolutely right. But hey, if only grocers know that and Canadians don't know that those prices will be frozen. You know, one, that changes the murkiness of marketplaces. It's good to know that that pricing will be reliable because not only are budgets very elastic, but pricing has been so variable and so very difficult to predict due to 
complex global factors. But what really intrigued me about Loblaw's move is that it sort of was an echo of a policy experiment we've seen in Greece and in France, Uh where these countries created what they call an anti-inflation basket. I know it's not like, it's not really hashtagable, right? Um, (laughs) it's, It's not glamorous, but I just thought it was a great policy example of government working with private corporations on an emergency kind of short-term measure. And in France, can I, can I tell you more about it? I'm sorry, I don't mean to ramble I would, when I get excited. No, I would I would love for you to. I was trying to, to lead you to explaining this okay. because I think this is also something so interesting. The way that I understood it was that they were sort of trying to skirt around government intervention for price freezing. So can you clarify yeah. the moves made in France and Greece? So. Greece sort of was hot out the gate first, and it's intriguing because it was with a conservative government, and they sort of legislated a list of about 50 items that they said to grocers, okay, look, we, we either want prices frozen here or we need you to slow the rate of growth. So the parallel we would be familiar with here in Canada isn't um, fixed rent. It would be the how the provinces set each year the maximum amount that uh, a rent can go up, right? So they were sort of like, mm-hmm. we've got to slow down how fast these prices are growing. So each grocery could choose what uh, was in a basket, not in terms of the items, but in terms of the brands. So in Canada, all of the major grocers have private label brands. Then, as most policy ideas do in Canada, right, we call it policy making, it's usually policy taking, floats over to France. They start talking about it, and the grocers there sort of put up their hands and say, hey, you don't have to legislate this. Uh, Why don't we do this a little bit more on our terms? Here's how we're going to proceed. And it was similar, right? It was time limited, but they they were choosing kind of what's in that basket and sort of dictating it. It's a lot to ask of grocers, right? Um, We know that Mm -hmm. grocery margins are really razor thin, and it has become popular du jour to sort of beat up on the grocery giants. But I almost feel we have to even be careful calling them grocery because they're very complex firms, right? Loblaw is more than just a grocery store. It has a grocery arm, but we know their profits are offset by, say, pharmacy. Anyway, those are two kind of experiments where, you know, at least for some people, they had pricing predictability. It wasn't across whole sectors. It was on, you know, one item in that basket, and it included for Greece, it included olive oil. That always that makes me laugh. I am, I have Greek heritage in my family, so that gave me a lo- a little bit of a lull. But baby formula, right? Pet food. I thought it was a really kind of again intriguing and almost loving intervention. But of course, if someone sees the headline price control, price freeze, price freeze on aisle one, right? Um, it's a very kind of polarizing, visceral response. But this is about time limited, either setting some prices and introducing pricing predictability or really starting to just slow the rate of the growth on certain prices on some items so that people can really predict their budgets and, and you know, not go to food banks as we're seeing Canadians flock to in record numbers. I mean, it's a really intelligent thing to do to try to get around government intervention for instituting a price ceiling. That way other items can maybe, you know, creep up in price without a grocery store necessarily putting it into our faces. But as you mentioned, it does kind of seem like a kind approach, which I think our grocers could 
could likely um, do with that marketing strategy right now. You know, they've sort of made themselves targets. In Canada, you know, we know the name of the CEO of Loblaws. I mean, we were talking, right. uh, Galen Weston is a household name, right? And so I think right. the workaround to try to market these a little bit differently is ripe for the taking. So is there interest here in Canada to do something similar? Where do we stand with the idea of government intervention and what's the grocery pushback? I mean, I, I don't see it happening. <laughs> I don't see something like this happening. In the, in the, in the competition Darn bureaus, um, doesn't mean it's not a good wild card. Look, we're going to see other emergency situations, food-related, through climate, other major events. Um, but in the competition bureau's grocery market study, you know, it, had, it sort of came to a conclusion that I feel you, you and I would have come to too, right? We need more competition in grocery. Canada doesn't have enough. Sure. Well, how are we going to get there? And you could actually argue that, I could argue against myself with this idea and say, okay, if grocery stores take their private label brands and control the prices and keep them undercut all their rivals to always have the cheapest item, is that a form of price discipline? Is it an anti-competitive behavior? Because they know the prices of their rivals, right? They own and operate within that very same marketplace. Now, there are variability in those prices. You see people on social media all the time being like, hey, how come this President's Choice item, the same item, is a different price at a Shoppers Drug Mart or No Frills or a Fortino's. That's really interesting, right? So zooming, zooming back, is there interest in Canada? I'd be interested as a consumer if a grocery store could say to me, this is, call it the anti-inflation basket. Hey, we know, we know times are tough. We know people are using their right. points more and more. We know people are redeeming coupons more and more. Um, this is our anti-inflation basket for this year or for this season, and at every one of our stores across Canada, this is what the price is going to be. I mean, sure, I cons- people could rail on them and say it's a stunt, but I'd be like, that's pretty cool. But it, but it's a good stunt that I think consumers are are needing right now. And you're right. I mean, it's not a secret that we're trying to deal with inflation in this this doom this like looming recession that keeps getting forecast. So. Why not just acknowledge it and try to do something to keep customers and consumers happy? We have to buy groceries and we have to buy them somewhere. Right. I want to and keep say, going with this conversation. And you say why not fast, do something. But... The, the government did do something with the, with the grocery one-time rebate. And I'm so sorry I interrupted you there. They did something, right? But that's not – you can't scale that. It's not forever. And it's not for everyone. Right. But at the and same it's time, it's a great – even to be put towards groceries. So <laughs> it really right, it could have exactly. been, been done – to, to anything. We were just talking a little bit about the grocery rebate uh, that came out, and I just wanted to get some more of your thoughts on that one. Can you talk about why maybe that strategy didn't go all the way that it needed to go? Well, you know, I I sort of felt my my mind was kind of divided there. I mean, I appreciated the swiftness of, uh, of a targeted kind of cash payment, um, and it was time-bound and targeted. Those are all great things. That's good policy design. But really, when I, when I step back, you know, that intervention alone doesn't address that structural problem of a concentrated grocery sector, right? And if anything, it, it's sort of fundamentally acting as a bit of a, a public subsidy for private profit-making, right? If we're taking, people are taking that government money, and you made the point, you can, we can do whatever with, with it or people who, who received it because it's, it's cash, and that is a good way to, to give people support in an efficient way. But, you know, it's not something that we want to sign up our governments to do in, in perpetuity, I don't think. So, again, asking as we're asking these questions, as we're looking at, you know, the Bank of Canada, you know, uh, sort of uh, we're looking at numbers where we know that these interest rates 
the Bank of Canada's decisions, rather, I'm not being clear, aren't affecting the prices of groceries in, in the sense that we don't see them going mm-hmm. down yet, right? We don't see that demand changing. We don't see them kind of coming down. So the other question is, you know, for the future of all sorts of prices, what will be the hangover from this moment in time, right? There's a stickiness there, right, where, you know, as we come out of an inflationary period, that sticker, those stickers might still kind of stay pretty similar, right? Mm-hmm. Um, kind of, I, I can't make a good analogy. It's too late here for me on Easter time, like a, like a bit of a rising tide <laughs> or something, right? We've like added water there, so all the boats went up. No, it's not useful, but... Yeah, that's just why it's something to think about. I, I don't think it's the craziest thing, but I, I did get really roasted on the internet for this op-ed, um, which really? can also be a charming and intriguing, yeah, yeah, and an interesting experience. I'm fascinated. I, lo- I love learning from people. People write to me. I'm so lucky, right, to get emails, DMs, comments. People send me sources, bring other perspectives to life. That is like a beautiful, awesome thing. And then I think some people just sort of saw the headline and they're like, this person's dumb, Um, which is just (laughs) them not reading. No, no, it's all good. I, I, I totally survived it. And and it's, it's, it's good. Um, It's a, it's a healthy experience. But it's funny that knee jerk reaction. It's, you know, the title, the title of the piece is it's time for the government to step in and freeze grocery prices, which I I didn't do that. Maybe you need to dig in a little bit more. (laughs) (laughs) I know my headline, my headline wouldn't be cool. It would be like, what about an anti-inflation basket for Canada? And no one right. would click that. So, no, I'm just getting around. I, I think it's just, it's interesting to me how quickly people will react to the idea of government stepping into doing anything. I think that we're yeah. so sensitive to the idea in some parts of the country about government overreach and overstepping. When Fair. when you dive into it a little bit more, this actually seems like a really great approach. I think instituting a price ceiling that would benefit all of us and potentially bring down inflation inflation in some way, hopefully, which is the strategy behind the Bank of Canada's interest rates, this might be something we're all interested in. Vas, you have such great perspective. I wish we could keep you on for so much longer because I know you've got way more to say on this one. But yeah, call uh, me again. Time that we... I will. Absolutely. Thank you okay. so much. I really appreciate it. I know it's a late, a late time for you. So thank you again for making it all time. good. Cheers. 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 Bye. <laughs> We have gotten some huge news this week. If you were a Taylor Swift fan, now it could have been the tweet that Prime Minister Justin Trudeau sent to her asking her to come to our country, or it could have been the millions of fans begging her online to please come here, or perhaps the money that's going to be made when she does arrive in Canada. Either way, Taylor Swift has now announced six tour dates in Canada in 2024. So we're going to take a look at the economic impact of her gracing us with her presence and just how much consumer spending is available for a show like this one. Our guest is technology law professor at the University of Toronto. He's a lawyer, management consultant, educator, columnist, and the author of two books, Law, Technology, and Culture, and the other one, Business of Social Media and Entertainment. Daniel Tsai is joining us. Daniel, thank you so much for making the time. Thanks for having me. I want to know, first of all, if you were surprised to hear that Taylor Swift had caved to the pressure if that's what happened and announced these six tour dates here in Canada. Was this a shock to you or not? Yeah, it was. Uh, I would have to say that uh, when you look at the context of the tour's uh, profits and what she's making in the United States, the uh, fact of the matter is Canada is a very small market, uh, but she did choose the largest market in Canada to come to, which is Toronto. And uh, she's she's uh, doubled the number of concert dates that she would normally have because most of the stadiums in the U.S. they can do up to eighty thousand people, 
Uh, so it's uh, it's a surprise that she's coming here, but it's also not a surprise that she's doing double the number of uh, tour dates here to try to compensate for the uh, money that uh, they would normally make if this was a U.S. city. You know, I think to call it Taylor Swift pandemonium is not a, is not an overreach here. I mean, there's a lot of excitement for Taylor Swift, and there's been so much demand for these tickets already. But it's a lot more, Daniel, than just a concert ticket. I mean, this is also going to include a ton of money in merch. Can you speak to all the different ways that money is going to pour in beyond just the ticket price itself? Well, this is like a once-in-a-lifetime experience for a lot of people. They, they, this is like one of the largest cultural phenomena to have graced us uh, in, in uh, generations because, first of all, this is like going to be a record-making uh, tour. Uh, she's already on pace to get into uh, possibly the tens of billions of dollars in uh, revenue that will be generated uh, in terms of the economics of uh, all the cities and countries she's visiting. So this is like a uh, historic event. And as well, you know, she has a number of accomplishments. She's the uh, the, the woman with the most uh, top uh, singles and albums in history. And uh, that number is growing. So uh, this is going to be like a, a huge cultural milestone event for a lot of people. So uh, I don't think people are going to be cutting back on their spending. And uh, what you're going to see is... Uh, People spending on restaurants, hotels, uh, other services when they get here. Uh, obviously, when you're in town, you want to have a good time. So people will be drinking and uh, experiencing the local uh, uh, sites. And uh, it's going to bring in a lot of people, not just from Canada, but from around the world. The timing, I think, is interesting because there are so many forecasts of a looming recession. But this mm-hmm. really speaks to how, just how much consumer spending is actually available in this country. Can you touch on that? Well, I mean, uh, let's put this into context. Uh, she has such draw that uh, people don't look at this as necessarily um, a situation where they have to mind their pennies. This is like a once-in-a-lifetime type of cultural phenomena that people want to be right. part of. Uh, this, this is sort of like, when, I, when you want to look at it historically, kind of like Beatles mania type, type thing. Uh, to sweeping uh, people. And, you know, cultural phenomena is like that. You know, we're in the world of virality. Uh, so everything goes uh, viral these days, and it takes on a life of its own. It amplifies itself. And so uh, what you'll probably see um, is that as the tour moves on, this phenomena is going to get bigger and bigger. Like, uh, we're looking at the tour dates in November 2024, but you're already seeing reports that, uh, like in Seattle, they had an earthquake. You know, it registered 2.3 on the Richter scale, <laughs> uh, just because people are shaking their booties to uh, shake, 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 shake it off. And so I, I think uh, this thing is going to become a much bigger phenomenon than people uh, even realize. Because uh, I, I just think uh, when you have this much hype, and the fact people are walking away from these shows uh, entertained and happy and see it as a really memorable experience. I don't, I don't think people are going to be uh, washing their purse strings on, on, a, on an event like this. I think you're touching on something that is a really unique part of this story, is that Taylor's demo is, you know, it's primarily millennials and Gen Zs, and they're part of a demographic that spends money on experiences and really isn't afraid to do that. Kind of living in the moment by dropping a bunch of cash on an experience like this one, and I think the FOMO element is another one that really plays into it. You might not even necessarily be a huge Taylor Swift fan, but this is something that if you have the opportunity to go, 
you're going to go. So does this make this a unique demo to cater to? Well, I, this this goes beyond her core demographic. We're not talking just uh, teenage girls and their parents or their mothers. We are talking about uh, middle-aged men and anybody who can get their hands on tickets. I've, <laughs> I've had this conversation with uh, colleagues, and uh, they're like, yeah, I signed up for Ticketmaster. I want to I get those tickets. And, <laughs> you know, they had no intention of even wanting to do it, but they're doing it because it's such an experience. And, right. uh yeah. <laughs> and I, and I'm, I'm, you have I'm to go. Them, so. <laughs> <laughs> so we're talking a little bit about the idea that Taylor Swift is going to save the economy here. I'm curious because, you know, the whole idea of trying to create these Bank of Canada interest rate hikes is intended to slow consumer spending. So is all of the spending that's going to go into these shows going to have an adverse effect? Could this actually have a negative impact on, on our economy? I, I'm not really sure about that. I mean, the uh, the one factor here is there may be additional policing uh, expense to try to ensure the event's safe. Uh, you don't want to have an incident uh, uh, where uh, you know somebody tries to to do something to upset the uh, uh, the situation there. So I think uh, yes, policing expenses will be there, but the the actual economic spinoff is quite beneficial. I, I just worked out the math here. It's uh, you're looking at about twenty million dollars per uh, concert date, and there are six dates in November 2024. So that's going to be about 120 million dollars just for concerts, just for the concerts. Wow. Now, if you look at the spinoff effects in terms of uh, a lot of uh, the people are coming out of town. I know people who, who want to come in from Vancouver and come to Toronto, and there's certainly a lot of people in the United States that missed out on getting tickets. People from Europe and uh, Asia that want to come here. So if you work that in, uh, the estimated potential economic uh, benefits could be close to $800 million. So uh, wow. possibly even more. Just because, you know, people are going to be buying hotels, they're going to be spending money, they want to get merch, uh, you know, they want to have meals and drinks and really enjoy the experience. And the other thing I think is really interesting is it's not a Toronto thing. This is actually a Canada thing. Because when you have the spotlight of the world uh, on Taylor Swift here in Canada, uh, the region is going to see uh, a huge uptick. So there's Niagara Falls. There's the fact that when people come up there, they think, oh, let's go to Montreal. Uh, you know, that's a, new, that's a unique experience. It's not too far away. There's French there, a different culture. So there's a whole bunch of effects that happen when people come uh, to a huge event like this. So uh, the economic upside is immense. You know, you talk about the different activities that people are going to take part in when they're here. And you think about even just for the hospitality sector alone in Chicago, she played three shows there this month. They reached 96.8% occupancy rates because of, coming for the Taylor Swift shows. So what would you recommend, Daniel, that businesses and hotels and restaurants do to capitalize on this? What would you expect and hope to see? Well, uh, one thing they have to be very mindful of is labor. They need to have enough staff. And uh, that's been a real issue in hospitality. Uh, You know, restaurants and uh, service industries like hotels, have had a difficult time uh, having staff. And part of this is the phenomena of the pandemic. You know, one reason why people are willing to open the purse strings, even in a recession, is because, you know, they had such a terrible time over the last two years 
uh, dealing with COVID-19 and being stuck at home. So there's still that that reserve uh, where people want to spend the money on, on a, a, an experience event like this. But at the same time, mm-hmm. businesses have struggled to have enough staff and wages have gone up and inflation. So uh, staffing would be the biggest uh, thing in terms of uh, all these uh, hospitality sector businesses being ready for the Taylor Swift phenomena. Now, the other thing that's really important is let's really take advantage of this event. You know, if, if with Taylor Swift coming, uh, this is an opportunity for tourism to get into high gear. Like uh, that means uh, promoting events related to her arrival here and uh, rolling out the red carpet, you know, showcasing uh, all the uh, unique things about Canada, about Toronto. And, uh, you know, just having her walk into the ROM or uh, walking the streets of Toronto or going up to Niagara Falls, those are things that would have such a huge impact on that region that, mm-hmm. uh, and bring attention to Canada. It's really good publicity. I wonder, you know, you, you touched when we first started talking, Daniel, about the fact that in, in comparison to her tour in the States, Canada is a smaller market. This is a, this is a smaller drop in the bucket for her, but still, I mean, substantial. We're talking about a lot of money here. Do you think that we're going to be seeing shows in any other cities? And this is pure speculation here, but would she be wise to capitalize on this and go elsewhere in our country? Yeah, so that that's a that's a difficult thing uh, because there's a logistical issue. She has a huge entourage. Uh, there's uh, numerous uh, trucks, truck drivers that have to move her stage and all her equipment and uh, transport it from city to city. The reason why uh, Canada probably was uh, added very late is the economics weren't there because uh, the stadiums tend to be smaller. And as well, you need a lot of these luxury corporate boxes. So for her to go up to Montreal in the Big O doesn't really work because that stadium is dilapidated. It doesn't have uh, sort of the all the all the things you would expect in a modern stadium. So there's only a really, uh, unfortunately to, to say this, but it really Toronto's has the facilities, even though it's on the smaller side compared to the American cities, it does have the facilities to facilitate the big bucks, the VIP type uh, corporate boxes and the big spending, corporate spending. Um, now there's a possibility she, she could go to Vancouver, but she's not going to be traveling mm-hmm. from Toronto to Vancouver. She'd have to go... Uh, like from Seattle up to Toronto, uh, sorry, from Seattle up to Vancouver or somewhere on the West Coast. But I don't right. know if that's going to fit into the logistics. So I, I would just err on the side of saying, let's just say it's Toronto for now and anything else up beyond that, whether it's a Vancouver, um, that's a bonus. And sign up and try to get your hands on tickets, which is likely going to be something that will be a bit of a battle to try to get your hands on. And that's an entire other part of the conversation, Daniel, is just how difficult it's going to be to even get these tickets in your hands. Do you think that we're going to see uh, a lot of opportunities for people to try to resell them? Yeah, I mean, certainly that's that's something that's been up for debate and discussion is the fact that uh, Ticketmasters have come under a lot of fire for the for the fact that uh, the tickets sell very quickly. Like literally you only have uh, a few minutes. Uh, pre-sales have been um, intensely strong, meaning that once the tickets come online, uh, usually the concerts sell out within about 10, 10, 15 minutes. So it oh. is one of those, yeah, it's pretty bad. And one of the situations with that is uh, Ticketmaster had issues in terms of preventing resellers. So uh, the problem was people who really weren't true fans 
uh, or true Swifties, they were uh, buying tickets for the sole purpose of reselling. And uh, uh, at this point, uh, it doesn't appear that Ticketmaster's put a restriction here in Canada for reselling. That means uh, if you buy the tickets, now I think I believe there's a there's a limit on the number of tickets you can get, but uh, at this point it doesn't appear that there will be a restriction on 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 transferring the tickets. Although um, that would be a great measure is if you buy the ticket, it should really be for yourself. You shouldn't be able to just uh, do it for a profit. Right. Well, Daniel, thank you so much for making the time to talk about this. Uh, I really appreciate your insight, and uh, hopefully you'll get your hands on tickets. Hopefully we all will, because I know everybody really wants to go to this show. So thank you so much for making time to talk about it. Thank you. Appreciate it. We're talking about how to keep things cool in your home, because as that example suggests, uh, being hot and uncomfortable in your home is something that we all really hate And we know that it can be really dangerous, too. So how do you accomplish it? Our next guest wrote a great article for theconversation.com about why your house might feel warmer than the thermostat actually reads. And I'm wondering if you've had this experience or if you are living this experience all the time. He writes about it to open the article with a really great way of framing it so that we're all on the same page. He says to picture two homes on the same street, one constructed in the 50s, the other in the 90s. So Identical air conditioning units recently replaced, both operating perfectly. Identical thermostats set at the same temperature. But when it's hot, the 1950s house will likely feel at least five and a half degrees warmer inside, even with the same air temperature. So what is really going on and how can you combat this if you live in a home that's like that example? He's the Associate Professor of Architecture uh, and Sustainable Built Environments and Marketing at the University of Arizona, Jonathan Bean. Jonathan, thank you so much for making the time. Really appreciate it. Oh, sure. It's a pleasure to be here. I want to talk a little bit about how to keep your home cool. But first, because you are coming to us from Arizona, I just want to talk a little bit about Arizona for a minute. Because when we're talking about dealing with extreme heat, you know it there best. There are reports of people suffering second and third degree burns from falling onto concrete in some parts of Arizona. The surface is so hot that it can burn you if you have trouble getting up right away. So can you just speak to the mental toll of dealing with extreme heat like that? You know, I think people are pretty adaptable. So I think that's sort of the the, the positive framing of it. And uh, I grew up in, in Chicago in the U.S. and it's cold there in the winter and it's real hot there in the summer. Um, and, you know, you, you adapt in, in colder places to put on a puffy coat and a hat and, uh, you know, and warm boots when you go outside in the winter, um, unless you're 15 or 16. And then you, you put on shorts and flip-flops. But, um, <laughs> right. you know, I, I think that the, the good news is that, that people in Arizona are pretty smart about how to deal with heat and, and how, to, how to live in that heat. And your body does, to, to some degree, adapt physiologically to hotter temperatures. But there's no question that, especially when it's been as hot as it's been lately, you know, we're looking at another um, 110 degree Fahrenheit day. It's about 44 degrees in Celsius. Um, that tomorrow, it's, it, it does sort of start to wear, <laughs> to wear you down a little bit, even, even if you are super adapted. You know, talking to you from Alberta and from a place like Edmonton, where we have temperatures that go into the minuses, so like minus 44 Mm -hmm. in the wintertime, you know, we sort of say it with the same resiliency, right? Like, yeah, we adapt and we get through and it makes us hardy and we can manage, but we hate it. It's not something that anybody enjoys. And I can imagine on the flip side, plus 44 must feel excruciating. So even if you are used to it, I mean, it's still something that you need to try to 
accommodate around and make yourself as comfortable as you possibly can. So that brings us back to the conversation about our homes and right. why our homes might feel warmer than the thermostat reads. So so talk a little bit about why you wanted to write an article about this, Jonathan. Why did you want to dive into this subject? Oh, I, I love that you're asking that question. So I'm, I'm, as you mentioned, a professor of architecture. And I think, you know, in, in many cities in the U.S., many cities around the world, we're dealing with uh, a lot of unhoused people um, mm. who, who need a place to live. Um, and there are lots of reasons for this. Um, there's war and displacement in other places. There's, um, you know, unequal distribution of income. There's lots and lots of reasons why um, we don't have enough enough housing. And, and in the United States, we just we also simply do not have enough housing. We haven't been building enough housing for years and years and years. And so there's there's a housing shortage. And so one question I get asked a lot um, is, you know, well, what do you think about these shipping containers, uh, shipping container homes? And, mm. um, you know, a shipping container is a big steel box. It's about um, eight feet, a couple meters on each side um, and comes in increments, you know, and, and you sort of People, I think, are tempted to look at those and think, oh, that would be perfect. Like, you know, we can convert it into a little living sure. unit and um, put somebody in there and, you know, problem solved. And, you know, I, I wouldn't mind like a little shipping container, you know, studio in my backyard. Um, <laughs> but I really don't think that they're great for um, for unhoused folks, um, especially in hotter climates. And the reason for that is a lot to do with why I wrote this article. So, Steel, which is what we make shipping containers out of and also what we make frying pans out of, um, is a really good heat conductor. But there's this other way that heat is transmitted that steel is really good at. So um, so you sort of are, are putting, putting a person in this tiny little environment and then surrounding them with something that, that we know is going to get hot just sort of from intuitive experience. But then the thing we don't think about is this other mechanism of heat transfer, which is which is radiant heat transfer, which is what I've written about in the article. Okay, so this is where I need you to kind of clarify this a little bit, because you talk about a, sure. a couple different new terms. Radiant heat and operative heat are, are the two of them. So let's dissect each one here. Um, and first of all, now you're really <laughs> you're really speaking to the uh, the appeal of shipping container homes and how those sound like an actual an, an awful place to live. Let's just acknowledge that first. But let's talk a little bit about radiant heat. What is that? So. So we're used to thinking about temperature, like you look at the thermostat in your home or your apartment, and that's the temperature of the interior of your building. Well, that's mm -hmm. the air, air temperature. It's not actually the temperature that you're feeling. And so it's the air temperature is generally only accounting when you're inside for about half of the temperature that you're feeling. The rest of it has to come from, uh, has to do with the, the temperature of all of the surfaces that are around you. So that's the floor, the wall, the ceiling, all the windows in your house. Um, all of those things have a surface temperature, and they are radiating heat towards you. So, you know, if you've if you've used a hot mm -hmm. iron, um, you know, or or you've maybe left a frying pan on the stove, and and you've forgotten about it, and you walk by a few minutes or maybe half an hour later, and you're like, oh, it just feels kind of warm over here. What you're feeling is radiant heat coming off of that iron or that frying pan. And so we, when you have older buildings, um, like built in the 1950s, like I was talking about, we have a lot of surfaces that don't have a lot of insulation. They're really, Got and it. they get really, really hot, especially in the sun. So we're basically surrounding ourselves with like little irons or little frying pans all the time. Great. Okay. Especially in a place like Arizona, where the temperature climbs to mid forties during the day. Yep. Okay. What about operative heat then? What is the difference between radiant and operative heat? 
So operative temperature um, is uh, what happens if you if you sort of add up all of the temperatures of the radiant surfaces that are around you and and make that kind of work worth half of the value. And then you you add uh, then you take the air temperature and that's worth the other half of the value. And you average those two things together. So this tells us that if you have really, really high radiant temperatures, then you need a really, really low air temperature in order to feel comfortable. And mm-hmm. even in that situation, you're not going to feel super comfortable because you're still going to feel, you're going to be like, kind of feel like you're getting a cold, right? Like, you're like, why is the air so cold, but I still feel really, really warm. So in an in a ideal building or a comfortable building, you're going to have the air temperature and the radiant temperature be pretty close to one another uh, within two or three degrees um, Celsius of one another. And, and that will make a really comfortable um, environment for, for you to be in. So are we talking about a situation where those experiencing radiant heat in their homes, increasing the temperature overall, are people that are living in older builds? In the example that you that you used to set up the yep. article, you know, you talk about the two homes, one built in the 50s and one built in the 90s. Is the idea here that most of the time people experiencing that increase in heat, it's coming from those older builds? Or is yep. that naive? Are we are we giving too much credit to newer builders suggesting that they know exactly how to accomplish this comfortable temperature in people's homes? Well, you're sort of nudging in an interesting direction here. But in general, <laughs> yes, where, where I am in Arizona, what, what you're saying is absolutely the case. So older homes are going to have more of an issue because modern building codes require reasonable levels of insulation in the walls and the windows and the ceilings. They could probably uh, require a little bit more, um, and that would increase energy. That would increase comfort and probably and decrease our energy use. What's, what's interesting about all of this is that that we like to think about heat and cold being like two totally different phenomenon. And that's because we physiologically experience them really differently, right? Like when you're really hot, you sweat, you get uncomfortable. When you're really cold, you, you don't sweat, you shiver. Um, and it, those are very different feelings. But heat is the same thing. And so it's just always moving in one direction. It's always moving from the hotter thing to the colder thing, always, mm. in most cases. So when you're when you are uh, in... Uh, in Alberta, in the winter, when it's really, really cold, right? Um, mm-hmm. and, and even if you are in a newer building, many newer buildings could probably use a little bit more insulation. They could use a little bit better windows. Um, those radiant temperatures are actually dropping too low for comfort. So you're sort of getting the, the, the opposite situation where you could use a little bit more insulation actually to keep you more comfortable in the winter so that the heat isn't leaving your body and going over to the window and then warming up the outside. Right. So we've been talking a little bit about why our homes might feel hotter than the thermostat reads. And you just explained radiant heat, heat essentially coming off of surfaces in our homes and how difficult it can be to try to balance that out to create this ideal operative temperature in our homes. We were kind of talking about this a, a little bit, but I want you to help clarify how many people might be dealing with this issue, trying to find that balance, but still having a home that feels hotter than the thermostat. Yeah, so just just where I live in Tucson, Arizona, there's about 40,000 houses that are similar to mine, um, which doesn't have any insulation in the roof and doesn't have uh, doesn't have single pane windows. So if those houses haven't been upgraded or improved since they were constructed, they're likely pretty uncomfortable inside. Oh, I can't even I can't even imagine what that must feel like when the temperatures climb to the places that they do in in Arizona. So, you know, I'm sure that in a situation like that, in a climate like that, 
you've got some expertise when it comes to trying to cool things down and live comfortably. How do you suggest that we try to create that environment? All right. Well, you know, if you've got lots of money, um, as usual, it's pretty easy to solve the problem. So <laughs> Perfect. You add okay. insulation. Yeah. You could add insulation to your roof. You can replace your windows with double pane windows. And if you're in a a more northern climate, then you probably want to go to triple pane windows if you've got the money. But if you don't have the money, there's a bunch of stuff that you can do. So the the best thing you can do is just try to keep the heat out of your house to begin with or off of your house. Um, You know, a lot of it's coming from the sun. So planting trees that cast shade on your house good plan getting some um, shades that are outside so that that keeps the bounces the heat off of the uh, away from the windows or off the windows and keeps it outside where it belongs that's also good though even those things aren't necessarily possible for everybody you might live in an apartment not be able to plant trees you might not be able to attach stuff to the outside of your building for one reason or another and in that case then um, using shades properly so that means closing them when there's there's light coming through the window Um, Mm -hmm. and also if you can when it's cool at night um, and not too humid you could open your house up and let the try to get the house to cool sort of chill down a little bit at night but of course the problem that we've, we've had in Arizona and the problem we're going to continue to have with climate change is that we're going to have hotter temperatures, we're also going to have more humidity in the air. So those night cooling strategies that, um, you know, work really well um, in the past aren't going to be working as well um, as often in the future, unfortunately. You know, you touch on the fact that global temperatures are rising, and that's a conversation that we've had, you know, on, on this show and across our network several times. What's the concern level like in places where they deal all the time with extreme heat, like Arizona? And when we're hearing more and more messaging that air conditioning units aren't necessarily environmentally sustainable, what is the what is the tension and the and the pressure in a place like that feeling like? Yeah, I think that's a really great question and probably a much longer conversation that we have time for. But I, <laughs> I and and you've hit on the the most important thing, right? Which is that we need air conditioning to survive in many places in the world, in Arizona, in India, um, in places, uh, in other in other really hot uh, places around the world. And people really need access to cooling. I, I think we can start to dis- distinguish between cooling and air conditioning, at least air conditioning the way that we know it. So hopefully we'll, ha- we'll see some new technical innovations and other ways of keeping places cool um, that don't have some of the negative impacts that air conditioning has. But the, the big one, the big problem with air conditioning is the refrigerant in the systems um, is actually a potent global warming gas. So these mm-hmm. systems don't get installed perfectly. You have a little bit of a leak. And the, the chemical that's conventionally used in most countries right now, this is all changing, but the, that's used right now is 2,088 times worse than carbon dioxide for global warming. So we really, you know, we don't want to use much, we want to use as little refrigerant as necessary, and we want to keep as much of it in our air conditioning systems as possible and, and out of the atmosphere. Jonathan, I think information that we all uh, need to know um, and might not necessarily have at our disposal. So I really appreciate you coming on to the program tonight and talking about this. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Anytime. Now, we all saw the announcement earlier this week, uh, some major news in Canadian politics. And it's not actually anything that really has to do directly with politics, but you know that the fallout is going to be significant. So Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and his wife, Sophie Gregoire Trudeau, announced their separation 
which you'd have to assume uh, was something that has been maybe brewing for quite some time. They each issued the same statement on their social media pages. Uh, I'll read it to you here just if you're catching up. They each say, hi, everyone. This is from Justin Trudeau saying, Sophie and I would like to share the fact that after many meaningful and difficult conversations, we have made the decision to separate. As always, we remain a close family with deep love and respect for each other and for everything we have built and will continue to build. For the well-being of our children, we ask that you respect our and their privacy. Thank you. And, you know, when you look at the comments on that page, it's it's a mixed bag of a lot of vitriol, a lot of people trying to turn this into something political, a lot of really nasty and bullying comments. You know, but I think for the most part, Canadians understand that you know separation and divorce is something that's actually quite common. We do see this all the time. We don't always see it in politics and especially playing out for a sitting prime minister to make this, this kind of an announcement while still in office is pretty rare. There are some parallels to Justin Trudeau's father, Pierre Trudeau, and we're going to get into that and the idea of what this might mean for his political future and if there are maybe some opportunities here. There's maybe a relatability angle when you think about the fact that so many Canadians can relate to the fact that they've likely gone through something similar. So what is this going to do and mean politically for Canada. Let's get into it right now with our guest, who's Professor of Political Science at Mount Royal University, Lori Williams. Lori, thank you so much for making time for the show. Really appreciate it. It's great to be with you, Chelsea. You know, we say that this was bombshell news, and I think really the reason that we say that is just because it was so surprising. I mean, this isn't really something that at least the majority of Canadians seemed to see coming. It's rare that this would happen while someone was still in office. I mean, we can speculate as to the reasons why and what's really gone on, if there's going to be more information. But just that very note of the conversation is just that the fact that this happened now, it's it's a shock, isn't it? Oh, no question. Uh, I, I mean, people may have noticed that Sophie Grigoire Trudeau has been less sort of present on campaign uh, trails and at events and so forth, but that easily could have been account, been accounted for by the fact that sure. they had growing, growing children and, and that, that the prime minister being in a very, very uh, time-consuming job, that, that she was putting that as her priority. I think, you know, politics is so interesting to examine because so much of it has to do with you know, the way that you portray yourself and sort of the image that you're always trying to uphold. And we can really only speculate, but I'm sure that this would have been something that, at least from Trudeau's perspective, that he would have likely fought against while doing, while still in office, right? Well, I'm sure it's extremely complex. Politically, this could be problematic. We haven't seen a prime minister run in an election uh, after having uh, separated or, or divorced. Um, normally in politics, the the idea of um, a supportive spouse being on the campaign trail front and centre is a, a key part of, of, of at least the, the, the network that's important to, to a leader, and particularly a prime minister or a president or, or whatever. Um, this is the sort of thing that, generally speaking, uh, is seen as a team activity, and, and it's all the more difficult when you've got young children who also require care and attention, um, making it, it just a, a much more complicated matter. 
Yeah, I think there are even there are a lot of questions too about you know just the logistics of how this is going to work and what what this is going to mean for for Justin Trudeau as a person certainly. But I wonder if you can speak, Laurie, to the fact that it seems like there is sort of a formula to get to a certain place in politics. And the idea of this traditional nuclear family, it it seems to play an important role. You know, we see this time and again with so many politicians. So how important is that really traditional family dynamic for portraying this this glossy politic politician image? It's it's more important in some countries or political cultures than in others. Uh, certainly, it's very important in the United States. I can't imagine something like this being um, as easily managed. Although, you know, there are, of course, there have been stories historically of of estranged uh, uh, couples, uh, a president with an estranged wife. But generally speaking, um, when you speak to people who've been involved in politics or close to those in politics. Those who do uh, well, one of the one of the key formulas for doing well is having, you know, a complete commitment on the part of both both members of a married couple. And again, that gets more tricky when you've got young children, but it it just seems to be part of the support network that that can be extremely effective. That that sort of second set of eyes to look at things, the judgment, the political judgment, or the connections, or the insights um, and supports that can be provided by. By a spouse. Now, we're seeing the tail end of this decision. That support obviously has been strained for some time. Um, and so what difference we'll see going forward as compared to what we've seen recently is, is difficult to know. And the prime minister is in, in um, difficult territory in terms of the, the defensive posture that he and his government have been in for some months now, um, trying to sort of turn, turn the page with the cabinet shuffle and a lot of challenges ahead. You know, it's interesting when you think about this, uh, you know, this this traditional family being so important in other countries, as you mentioned, the States, it, this might shine a light on the fact that it's not necessarily so important here in Canada. I, I think Justin Trudeau himself and certainly his government have really tried to to make Canada appear as we are a very progressive, very, you know, politically correct country. So, you know, maybe there's a way to play into this. Maybe there's a relatability angle here that could work in terms of, being a separated or potentially divorced person. That's something a lot of Canadians can relate to. Is there a political opportunity here that we might not just not have seen exercised before? I, I think there may well be a lot of compassion and, and just understanding and, and sadness that that a, a family has had to go through this, this sort of difficulty. I mean, marriages have their challenges all the time, but a political marriage, one that where the not only is is the leader in a uh, prime minister in a very public role, but increasingly with social media and the kind of vitriol that we're seeing publicly, you alluded mm. to it uh, at the beginning of our conversation. Um, I, I think the the uh, virtual and physical threats to uh, politicians, the invasiveness into personal lives and so forth, has, has made all of that um, exponentially more difficult. So I think there is a on one hand, the chance that it could generate some some sympathy, some support, some uh, sort of humanity to to uh, the prime minister, uh, but it also, even though we're seeing this this uh, very insensitive response by some on on social media, mm-hmm. I think it's something that opposition parties could get into a lot of trouble if they tried to tread on that territory. I think it'd be. Uh, very, very risky, uh, and and more likely than not, I think could blow back on them. So, um, on on the other hand, the prime minister reacting to some of the stuff that's out there, 
um, could put him in a bad light. So it's it's delicate territory. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think you're framing that beautifully. I think that's exactly the way to put it, is that it is really delicate. And I think to to try to campaign against him as the opposition using the broken family argument, I think is a really dangerous one that attacks a lot of Canadians, uh, especially in a really sensitive place. But what what could opportunities look like for the opposition to really do with this? I don't think it. I I think it's just too too risky. I think what they're going to do is focus, as we've seen in these recent ads that have gone out, just a um, playing of um, the history of the prime minister's position on on housing. A pretty effective ad, the kind of thing that could be quite uh, uh, sort of chip away at the support for the prime minister. When you know you've been in office for as long as he has, won a series of elections, going for potentially a fourth. Um, that's a difficult thing to manage. And the fact that the Liberals are doing as well as they are in the polls is in at least to some measure, and not that they're doing well, but they're not doing worse than they are right now, in part because of um, the, the controversies surrounding Pierre Poilievre and some of his, his public positions. Um, but there is certainly an opportunity here for opposition parties to really hammer away at those weaknesses that they have been effective at, at highlighting historically. And frankly, I think the next election is not going to be about if Justin Trudeau is running as leader of the Liberals. It's not going to be about Justin Trudeau's marriage or family or his values or any of that, that sort of thing. Um, it, it's going to be about the issues that Canadians are struggling with. It's going to be about housing, about affordability and inflation. It's going to be about... Uh, public safety uh, interference in our, um, our elections and, and our, our various systems by foreign right. governments and so forth. I think that's where people are really going to be focusing their attention. Both uh, parties have an opportunity to, to sort of lay out their vision for what they want to do to try to address those problems. And uh, But that's not going to be enough. There's going to have to be some credibility associated with that. And the government, of course, may say this is what we're going to do. But unless Canadians see some progress in that direction, it's going to be very difficult for them to succeed. You know, all we can really do is speculate about the real reasons as to why this separation is happening. We might not ever really get the full story. Canadians aren't necessarily owed to that. But there will likely be a a lot of conversation about this for quite some time. And I think it really parallels the story that took place about Justin Trudeau's dad, Pierre Trudeau, and that separation. Are you seeing a lot of similarities here or conversations about the similarities that you think might play out in a similar way? Well, there are similarities, and I think it it raises some questions that are relevant for today. I think it's very different in the sense that um, although it was managed reasonably well, um, the the children stayed with their dad, but there had been a lot of public controversy associated with Margaret Trudeau, Justin Trudeau's mom, uh, at a time when when it wasn't understood that she was dealing with mental health issues. Um, In this case, I think it's it's quite different in that there's there's a sort of united front, a common uh, concern for their children, the fact that the children are staying at Rideau Hall and the parents are going to be jointly parenting from that base um, to protect their security and also uh, to ensure a greater, greater amount of stability. Um, but what what is interesting is that we have not seen uh, a prime minister run for office in an election after uh, having separated from from a spouse, um, and and so it raises questions about whether it could have implications. And 
some of the articles that I, or analyses that are, have been most interesting to me over the last few days, not just about this, just the whole question about, again, at another, from another level or angle, um, the question about whether it's it's best for the Liberal Party, for, for Justin Trudeau, who can, to continue to be um, to be the leader. And, and that may well be something he is personally reflecting on, uh, simply because family priorities, as we often hear politicians say, they want to step back uh, to prioritize their family. That may be a consideration that's, that's part of the calculus going forward as well. There's so much difficulty in this and so many different, I think, delicate decisions to be made and so much careful treading that needs to really take place. And I really I feel for them. This can't be a normal separation, just like it couldn't have been a normal marriage. I think the attention isn't going to go away. And I'm wondering, Laura, if you can just speak to the role that this happy, smiling face that politicians they have to portray in public, even in difficult situations like this. I mean, it must be Mm -hmm. so challenging. I'm sure. And and again, this now reveals, and this is the one, speaking to another point you made earlier, the one thing that that could um, have an impact on people's impression of Justin Trudeau is the fact that he has, um, he's been dealing with uh, public attacks and and so forth, and for the most part, been been even-handed and uh, respectful and trying to connect with people in spite of the negativity that swirled, has swirled around him. Um, there have been a lot of times in Justin Trudeau's career where he sort of surprised people by his ability to manage under difficult circumstances. And that may be one of the things that Canadians are looking at, is that he is uh, clearly governing in a situation that has been difficult for some time. We don't know how long, and there's not been any any real evidence in his behavior or management that that reflects that. Um, so again, it could be uh, a little bit of a benefit uh, to him in the eyes of those who are looking and reflecting on on uh, him as as a potential leader going into the future. Um, but again, I think those those issues that are priorities for Canadians are going to be the primary consideration, and judging which of the leaders available to them are best suited to try to help deal with the problems they're struggling with. Yeah, there's a lot of questions about the impact. And, you know, will we ever be able to know, will we be able to tie the impact of this to his inevitable political career, whatever that's going to look like? You know, the the questions might not actually ever really be fully or, or satisfyingly answered. But uh, it there definitely is a lot to talk about. There's a, there's a lot of interest here. And, Laura, I really appreciate you coming on this evening, especially so late to talk about this. Thank you so much for your time. Well, it was great to join you and uh, and uh, to be able to speak about something I think a lot of us are are, are thinking about and what the implications might be for the future of the Prime Minister of the country. Absolutely. Thanks again, Laurie. Really appreciate it. Thank you.